Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. This passage doesn't have any Old Testament names in it, so I'm excited to share that with you this morning. This has to do with the baptism of Jesus. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Thank you, Lord, for your word um, and how it, how it shapes us and how it forms our minds. Um, Lord, help us to, to, to submit to it today. Help us to submit to um, what, it, what it calls us to do and who it calls us to be. Um, and ultimately, Lord, um, help us to submit to the Savior of, of this book, the, the centerpiece of, of the scriptures, and that is Jesus. And so help us, Lord, to see him um, for, for his glory, um, see him in all of his beauty, see him in his, in his uh, worthiness to be followed. And so, Lord, we, there are things that we that we don't know, that we need your help knowing. There are things that we um, have not become that we need your help in becoming. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would help us in these ways this morning by your spirit. In your name, amen. You may be seated. All right, Matthew chapter three, verses 13 through 17. As we talked last week, we established this, that the key figure who Matthew is indisputably and unapologetically pointing to is Jesus, right? So Sunday school answer. Who is Matthew pointing to? Jesus, Jesus 100% today. There you go. If you want to argue that, uh, we can have a conversation somewhere later. But again, it's indisputable who Matthew was pointing to is Jesus. Now, we have, we, we have the responsibility of responding to what Matthew's saying in whatever way that we will, but what he's establishing and what he's laying out for us is this is who Jesus is. And so we're going to look some more into what Matthew is saying about Jesus. And in today's, in, in today's text, in Matthew's gospel, we really see Jesus emerge for the first time. So we've heard about Jesus, yes, but, but as far as just seeing Jesus and, and like there being, being some sort of personal encounter with Jesus... We see Jesus emerge for the first time. And, and so here he is in person. Here he is in the flesh for us to see what is he doing? How is he behaving in this world? And it's safe to say, I think, it's safe to say that, that Matthew has given Jesus quite the buildup, hasn't he? G Matthew has built Jesus up in, in such a way. And so at least one thing that we're, I think we're allowed to be sensing and feeling is, is that this guy has a lot to live up to, right? It, Matthew has said some major things about Jesus. And, and I'm not saying the text poses this question, but for us, it's like, this guy has a lot to live up to. He's the long-awaited Messiah. 
He is, he is the son of God. He is, he is the promised king. He is the, he is the blessing. John the Baptist showed up and, and is mirroring what the Jews had been told that Elijah would say when he comes back someday in the book of Malachi. Matthew even says um, that this John the Baptist guy is who Isaiah is talking about. And so the stage is being set in a pretty massive way for Jesus. It is all quite the buildup. Yet when we see Jesus appear here in Matthew, he doesn't appear quite the way that we would expect this world-shaking figure to appear, right? Um, it's, it's like, okay, we've got this massive buildup. Surely he's gonna, you know, he's gonna emerge from like the, 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 the smoke machines of Jerusalem um, up through the, the, the thing in the stage that lifts up you if you're ZZ Top, you know, um, like lifts you up through the stage and like fog machines and lights. And he's going to come out in this epic way. Yet, what we see in Jesus, this is so important for us in this text, yet what we see in Jesus is not so much a message out of the gate, not that he didn't have a message, but what we see is a particular posture that Jesus takes. He takes a particular posture. Now, Jesus has a message, but this massive figure who Matthew has built and John the Baptist prepared the way for shows up not out of the gate with a message, but with a posture. And we're going to kind of look at that posture, what that posture is. In fact, I don't, I think it's probably, at least in Matthew's gospel, the way that we see Matthew frame Jesus, it'll be at least another 40 days after what happens here before Jesus even speaks publicly. In front, of, in front of any kind of crowd of people. From here, Jesus goes out into the desert and he's tempted. And so like the beginning of the ministry of Jesus is pretty low key, pretty low key. And so I believe that there is this major and deeply intentional theme being developed here and introduced to us in Matthew 3 that will continue on into chapter four through the first several verses in Jesus' temptation. And I think it's vital that we recognize this. It's really vital that we recognize what is going on. And it's this, Jesus, the son of God, son of Abraham, son of David, is identifying himself with humanity. Jesus is identifying himself with mankind. What a strange thing. Like that, that should fall on us in a sort of way. Um, that Jesus, this God man, is, is identifying with humanity in such a, such a provocative way way. And Jesus is going to great and unexpected lengths to do this. He's going to great lengths to do this. In a, in a little bit, he's going to go out into the desert. We're not getting there today. He's going out in the desert. And he's going to almost starve. He's going to be tempted in order to identify with mankind. Let's look at two verses from Hebrews. Before we even get to Matthew, let's go over to Hebrews real quick. Um, and we're not going to spend a lot of time here. I'm just simply going to read them. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 17 through 18. This is what the writer of Hebrews says, that therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It's a lot of big words. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So because he has suffered the way that humanity suffers, he is sufficient to help us in our own suffering. Look at what Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 through 16 says. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest 
who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hey, we're about to do something with this, okay? Like, if you think you're just passively listening this morning, we're not just passively listening because we're about to do something. It's gonna make some of you uncomfortable. We're gonna look much more deeply into these verses probably over the next two weeks because I think it applies particularly well to the temptation of Jesus, that he has suffered in every way, he's been tempted in every way that you and I have, yet he's never given in to that temptation. He's without sin. He is the sinless son of God. But Hebrews, what Hebrews is doing here, we're not gonna get into it deeply today, but what Hebrews is doing here is it's helping us put some handles and I think like some doctrine. You're learning doctrine this morning. Um, it gives us some doctrine to what's going on in Christ's ministry that Jesus is the sinless son of God. And so here's what we're gonna do. These verses, if you were following along or if you, if you were listening, I think, it, I think it's, there's a command within the last verse that I read, Hebrews chapter four. Look what it says. In light of having a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. And so we're just gonna take some time to pause and do that. We're gonna take some time to, to take the truth that we just heard, to take, the, take what, you, what you just heard, church, is life-changing. Can I please hear an amen? What you just heard is life-changing, that you have a, a God who you worship, who is able to sympathize with you in every area of life. And even though those areas, dark areas of life, we fail and we fall and we sin and we, we, we give in, in every area of life, Jesus was tempted, yet he never gave in with sin. And then the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, if that's the case, let us draw near to him with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace in our time of need. Here's what we need to know this morning. There is not a single person here this morning who is not in need of the mercy and the grace of God. You haven't just received the mercy and grace of God. You are a ongoing recipient of the mercy and the grace of God. You need the mercy and grace of God today. You're gonna need it tomorrow. You're gonna need it next week. And so we're just gonna take time now as a church to pause. I mean, we're gonna pray and cry out in thankfulness to the Lord for his goodness to us and his awareness of us. The word again tells us that in light of who Jesus is, that we should draw near to the throne of grace in our time of need. And so let's, let's bow together. And I'm just, it's gonna be quiet in here for probably uncomfortably, an uncomfortable amount of time. If you think this is like a little 15 second Baptist thing that they do, like it's not that. We're going to spend an uncomfortable amount of time, maybe two to three minutes in complete silence. And I'm just, I'm asking you to be obedient to what the word says here. To say, in light of what you've just heard, respond to Jesus in your, in your time of mercy or in your time, in your time of need for mercy and grace.
Church family, I, I pray that, that prayer isn't just something that we do. I've been, I've been convicted by this, and so I'm not declaring something that I've got figured out. But even just as of recent, the Spirit of God has just put on my heart that prayer not be something just that we do, but prayer be who we are. That prayer be, as a church, that it's, that it's who we are. And so that even moments like this would become more, more familiar um, and more, more comfortable for us. And that maybe there would be times where it gets a little bit uncomfortable, but that prayer would be someone that we are. And so here's where we're going today and what we're gonna see in the text of Matthew chapter three. If you've been with us, you know that the best thing for you to do, the way that I, the way that I write my sermons is just looking at the text and just reading through it. And so if you use your scriptures today, um, you will not get lost, I, I hope. If you do, that's my bad. I chased a rabbit probably. Um, and so here's where we're going today and what we're going to see in the text. Three, three things, the humility of Jesus, the obedience of Jesus, and the sonship of Jesus. The humility of Jesus, the obedience of Jesus, and the sonship of Jesus. And so Jesus not only is all of these things, he's not only humble, he's not only obedient, he's, he's not only a son, but he also exists as the example in all of these things. And so Jesus is the perfect picture of humility. Jesus is the perfect picture of obedience. Jesus is the perfect picture of being a son of God, being the son of God. But he also exists for us to see as an example. And just lest you misunderstand, Jesus is more than an example, right? He's not, he's not just an example for us. He's, he's Lord. And so being Lord, Jesus does serve as an example to us. And so he lived these things out perfectly and it is in his perfect humility, in his perfect obedience and in his perfect sonship where our righteousness rests. Just so you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But he serves as an example for those who will follow him. And so let's look at the humility of Jesus just simply in verse 13. Uh, let's read verse 13 and 14. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? We've got to understand and catch this out of the gate. We've got to understand what Jesus is doing out of the gate. Humility is no secondary aspect to who Jesus is. Humility is not just some like, uh, good topping to his, to his amazing ministry. It's not secondary to who Jesus is. The, the New Testament, literally the story of Jesus in the New Testament opens with the humility of Jesus in telling about his birth. If, if we miss the humility of Jesus and the birth of Christ, we're missing some of the point of the story of the birth of Christ, that it's a humble posture that the son of God is taking. The, the birth story in the incarnation is a grand display of humility. And so humility is the front, middle, and back to the ministry and the life of Jesus. It's not, again, it's not just some, some actually, in fact, one commentator, I love this. I, one, I'm just telling you what a commentator says. It's not in scripture. One commentator frames this scene in Matthew actually as the first miracle of Jesus, the miracle of his, of his humility, that it's a, a miracle that, that God, John, by the way, John's gospel is going to establish Jesus as God. It's a miracle that God would stoop in humility and, and that, that it's a miracle that what would be true of Jesus in the book of Hebrews is true about Jesus. That's, that's miraculous. 
And so the one who is claimed to be the son of God and the Messiah begins again, not his ministry with a show, but with a posture of humility, just with this, this humble posture. And that's what he's coming to John. And John's shocked by it. John is like, John is, says, what in, the, what in the world? Like, I'm, you're supposed to baptize me. And so Jesus' whole life will be like this. Like we, we see that this is the, the way that Jesus' life goes because Jesus' life ends, his, his earthly life on the cross ends on a cross between two thieves. And his, his ministry begins in a river among sinful people. I mean, he's, he is just in the middle of the, sin, of, the, of the sin party, right? Now, you know what I'm saying there, right? Like he's not, he's not sinning, but he's just, he's just all up in this. He, his life ends on the cross between two thieves and it begins, his ministry begins in a river with sinners who are repenting and confessing of their sins and being baptized, in, in fact, I personally get this picture. I have, I have a couple of pictures up here, Quinn. Sorry, I didn't tell you about this. I, this is conjecture. I personally get this, this picture of Jesus in one of those baptismal lines. You know, like, have you seen Our Brother, Where Art Thou? You know, like where like all the people are like leading down to, to the pond and, it, you know, it's just, you couldn't pick out, you couldn't pick out who's who in a crowd because they're all wearing the, pretty much the same thing and there's just this line. We've got, I think there's another picture. This is just kind of the way that I picture this scene in my mind um, of just this, uh, this is a pool. I don't think chlorine or pools existed back then, um, which makes it more amazing. Like Jesus getting in dirty water. Uh, we, this is kind of the way that I picture it, that Jesus is just among this crowd of people, of, of these people coming to be baptized. And Jesus is just like John's, you know, he baptized this person, he baptized this person. It's like Jesus shows up and, and John's kind of aware of who he is and, and, and that he's the one. And John's like, no, this isn't, this isn't right. Regardless of, of what Jesus did and what we aren't aware of, we don't know that it looks like this, but regardless of what he did and what we aren't aware of, we have plenty plainly written here that should astonish us and that attest to this low-key, humble posture of Jesus here at the beginning of his ministry. That's the point of this. That is, that is part of the point of what's going on in the end of chapter three, the beginning of chapter four, that he's taking on human not only human flesh, but he's taking on the human experience that he's, that, he's, that he's identifying with sinful people as the son of God. What a mind-blowing thing. Look, here's a couple of th- ways that I just wanna challenge us. We've, we've, what I've done so far is just try to, try to faithfully preach what's here in the text, but, but let's apply this to us. I think, I think Jesus, <laughs> it, it, to put it in a, in a provocative way, Jesus shows us here that the, that the way up is down. He shows us that, that the way to, to greatness, if, if you will, or, or, or to, 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 to where you want to be is, is not in, in, in coming in in, in, this, in this mighty, prideful, arrogant way, but in a posture of humility. We get this turned around, don't we? I mean, we get, we get this turned. If you're, if you're in business, you, you understand kind of the, 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 the implications of, of, of what this means. We get this turned around because we think that because we have something to say, that we're worth following. We, we think that if we have something good to say, that, that, that you should follow me because I have something to say. What, what Jesus is saying is that, is that true leadership and true humility doesn't begin with what you say, but with who you are. 
It begins with, with, who, with who you are, that you would be a person who is humble in your posture, not someone who is arrogant. And, and don't even get me confessing the way that I reacted when they canceled my Hamilton show a few weeks ago. Like, I was not very humble. It was, it was not a, a shining moment for me. But ironically, if you, if you pull back and you look at Jesus' life, this is something that I think that we notice throughout the, the message of the Gospels, that if you pull back and you look at the life of Jesus, it's really just a continual descent, isn't it? Like the, the life and the ministry of Jesus is a, is a continual descent that, that, he, that he came from heaven to earth. Remember, he came from heaven to earth. You know that song. He came from heaven to earth, into the baptismal waters, into the belly of the earth and his death and his burial. It's just this, there's just this picture. I'm not saying that's the point of his life, but it's just this, this picture of, of who you would expect to be constantly you know, going up, going up, going up. In fact, I think one interesting thing that we're gonna see next week that, that I don't wanna ruin too much is that, is that the way that Satan tempts Jesus is by, by actually calling him upward, by saying like, I will, I'll make you greater. I'll make you, tempting him with these, with these lies that, as if he could actually do it. But the way of Jesus, the way that Jesus is establishing is like, hey, the, 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 what makes me worth following is one of the aspects is my, my glory and my majesty, but but it's also my humility. And Jesus is continually descending. He comes, John 1 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Some theologians call this the condescension of Jesus, that he condescended. We think of condescension in a negative way, that that someone is condescending to us, but the true meaning of the word condescending is one who is coming down with. And Jesus condescended. It's amazing, isn't it? And so we see the humility of Jesus, but then we see the obedience of Jesus. Look what verse 15 says. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Jesus says something interesting here. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Am I the only one who thinks that's a little bit confusing or has read that ever and thought it's a little bit confusing? What does it, what does it mean by Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness. Does, does it, there, there's a couple of things that could make this statement confusing to us, and I think it relates to the word righteousness. Uh, firstly, Jesus says to John that it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what makes this particularly challenging is what comes into most of our minds when we think of the word righteousness. Um, and so if you're not confused, let me help you be confused. Um, I'm gonna help you be confused. What comes into most of our minds when we think of righteousness is is justification, right? Like being saved, um, that, that, I, that, that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to me, that I have been saved um, and I am justified and like I am, I am good to go. So in light of that narrow definition of righteousness, is, is Jesus getting saved? Is this, is this Jesus being saved? And, and does he need John's help to do it? Because he says us, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Why is Jesus getting saved? What, what comes into our minds when we, hear, when we think of righteousness is not inaccurate. Can I just say, that is a way to understand what righteousness is. A way to understand righteousness is being made righteous, being justified, being saved, as many of us would put it. But there's another way to understand it beyond just this personal salvation. 
Um, and, and, and which is, again, what many of us tend to think of when we hear this. And, and so I'm getting, to what it, I'm getting to what it means, but this leads us to what else may be difficult to understand, that is Jesus' baptism satisfying all the righteousness that God requires? Like is, is, is Jesus' one act of baptism satisfying all the legal demands of what God requires of us? Well, if we say it simply and plainly, we know that these are things that it can't mean. We know that Jesus' salvation didn't save, Jesus' baptism didn't save everybody. We know that, like, wouldn't this be more fitting for Jesus to say at the cross or as, a, as, a, as a resurrection if we're understanding it in that way? I think it's more simple than at least my mind wanted to make it. And so I've, I've consulted many people and, and resources much smarter than me. And, and I think the way that we need to understand what this righteousness means is simply doing the will of God, obedience. So righteousness does have justification implications that you are saved, but it also has implications on doing what is righteous, doing what is right. Um, we're gonna see Matthew, I think he, he references righteousness seven or eight times throughout his gospel. And, and in, in a, at least in some context, he's speaking of it in that way, that we would be doing the will of God. And so what Jesus is saying here is that John... <laughs> You've got to baptize me because this is God's will. And I am obeying what, Jesus, what God is commanding me to do. And so understand it in that way. So simply put, Jesus is being baptized because it is part of what God has called and commanded Jesus to do while here on the earth. If Jesus is going to live a perfectly righteous life that God requires, baptism in his life is part of that obedience. He must be obedient. So Jesus is also going to be obedient. He's going to be righteous in the desert, right? He's going to be righteous at the cross. He's going to be righteous in the garden. He's going to be righteous at every turn. He's going to be obedient and do the will of God at every turn. And so if he's going to live that life, this is one of those things that Jesus must do to fulfill that righteousness that God requires. So Jesus here in his baptism, I think this is really important kind of in a, in a way to apply this to, or to understand it if you're confused. Jesus here in his baptism isn't modeling what the path to salvation is. He's, he's leading the way in obedience to the Father, right? So we all know baptism doesn't save you. Hopefully we know that. Uh, salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, we believe and we practice baptism here, um, but what Jesus is doing here is he's not saying, this is the way that you're saved. He's saying, this is the way that God has commanded me to live my life and I'm going to follow him. That's what Jesus is, is saying here. And so this, this attests, I believe, let's kind of like work on what we've done so far. This attests and supports not only his obedience, but his humility, like Jesus is taking this humble posture of being an obedient servant to the Father, right? So he's obedient and he's humble. In fact, I love Philippians chapter two, verses five through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let me pause there real quick. 
I don't know if this is what that verse means, but when it says up to the point of death, it, the way that it comes across to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong later, but it comes across to me is that up to the point of death and everything that led up to that point. So he became obedient. He became obedient to the point of death. So he, that means he became obedient in his walk with the father. He became obedient in everything that the father was calling him to do to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. That's Philippians 2, 5 through 11. That verse is showing us that for Jesus, the way, the way, the way that he chose was that in order to be exalted, he had to condescend. He came down so that he would go up. And that's, that's what this passage is saying, that, that Jesus humbled himself even to that point. And so just a beautiful display of the humility and the obedience of Jesus. Um, thirdly, the final thing that we see, um, this is really fascinating. And we, I wish we had two years to preach these two verses. Um, the, sonship, the sonship of Jesus. Um, what happens here in verses 16 and 17 is, really is fascinating. So let's read 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so Matthew has acknowledged the place of Jesus. The wise men came and they, they recognized the significance of Jesus. John the Baptist acknowledges um, the one who would come and like the one to put the icing on the cake and the one who supersedes all of them is the voice of God. So you don't have wise men, you don't have Matthew, you don't have John the Baptist. You have the voice of God the Father booming from heaven saying, this is him. This is him. Matthew's already told us that. This is him. In case you have any doubt, here's God saying, this is him. Hey, this is a massive claim. This is a, this is a huge claim. And so there are, there are, there are people who, are, who, are, who, who we love that, that, that deal with doubts of, of, of who this is, but we at least have to reckon with that this book right here makes the claim that God himself from heaven spoke down and said, Jesus is the one. So we can reckon with that however we decide, but we have to respond to that in some way. And so here, the voice of God affirms who Jesus is, the son of God, as it was prophesied in Psalm chapter two, verse seven. Look at Psalm two, seven. I love, man, don't you just love the way the Bible connects? Psalm two, seven. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And God isn't only affirming Jesus as the son of God. This is really, really interesting. God isn't only affirming Jesus as the son of God, but the spirit is present too. You see the spirit, right? And the spirit's not a dove. I was instructed this week in our sermon study, the spirit is not a dove. Um, so get rid of the picture of the dove that's in your house above your mantle probably. The Holy Spirit is not a dove. The Holy Spirit is a real being. <laughs> the spirit is a person. And, and he's not a dove, okay? Not a dove. Say it with me. He's not a dove. Go to your, go to your grandma's house and say, the spirit's not a dove, okay? Uh, the spirit is not a dove. 
So you've got the Father who's present in this, and then you've got the Holy Spirit show up. Not as a deaf. The Spirit shows up, and he affirms Jesus as the, as the servant of God. And you go back to, to Isaiah chapter 11, you go back to Isaiah chapter 42 and Isaiah 61, and in each of these places, a specific reference to the Spirit of God being upon the Son of God is there. So if you need to check me on that, go to Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42, or Isaiah 61. In all of those places, the, the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is, is descending on the Son of God. And it's all pointing to this moment. It's all pointing to what's going on in this thing. And so this is amazing. In the opening chapters of this book, man, you've got some gnarly claims that Jesus is the son of God. He is the son of Abraham. He is the son of David. And that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the promises that God makes to his covenant people. First, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Anybody, you, you, we've, so you're seeing, you've noticed the appearance of the Trinity here, right? We see the Trinity present here at the baptism of Jesus. Got the Father, the Son's there, the Spirit's there. Three distinct persons, all deity, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Interesting fact, the Trinity appears here at Jesus' baptism. The other place that the Trinity appears in Matthew's gospel is at the baptism of the church in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19. Uh, chapter 28, verse 19. You will baptize him in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit loves him some baptism. The Trinity loves him some baptism. And so this is how the ministry of Jesus begins, a humble, obedient baptism. And so the question for us here today is how do we respond? Because this is, this is the, remember last week we established that when the gospel is proclaimed, we have a responsibility of responding. You really don't have a choice but to respond. You respond to it in disobedience or respond to it in obedience. So how do we respond to this? First of all, you trust this Jesus. This is, if, if what just happened in this unbelievable, mind-blowing thing and at the end of Matthew chapter three, if all of this happened, you'd trust him. You, you, you trust in who he is. You believe in who he is. Jesus himself in the book of John says that the work of God is this, that you believe in him who God has sent. So believe in him. I mean, I'm, I'm imploring you, if you haven't, that's, that's, the, that's this, the, the step that you need to take. You don't need to go clean yourself up. You don't need to go apologize to, to, to anybody for anything. You don't have to explain yourself to God. You come to God completely helpless. And you say, I am, I am utterly depraved. I am, I am utterly and, 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 and deeply wicked and sinful. And, and yet I have full confidence that if I place my trust in you, you will forgive me. That's the, that's the response. And if, if that's not the response that you get, then the response that you are taking is, I don't trust that. Secondly, simply put, not to, 
not to, to create any confusion in, in how we believe that salvation is attained through faith in Christ. But secondly, just real simply from this, it's like you just, you do the will of God. You obey him. What is God calling you to do today? What is God calling you to do tomorrow? What has he been calling you to do that you are disobeying him in? Now, man, I'm really glad that all of my moments of disobedience don't pile up and, 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 and count God as an enemy of me. No, my moments of disobedience, I know Jesus has perfectly obeyed and that my hope in salvation rests in what he has done and not what I've done. But we trust him. But secondly, and, 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 and as important for those who would call themselves a believer, you obey God. You do as well. You live humbly by rejecting and fleeing from pride and you obey him by doing the things that he commands you to do. That's a novel idea, right? Your parents expect you to obey. You think God expects us to, to be obedient to him? Yes. And, and hey, let me just tell you as a believer that, that the, the, the obedience, we've, we've said this before, is that, that we, don't, we don't work for God's approval, we work from God's approval. And working from the approval that we have makes obedience a lot easier, right? It makes it a much more joy-filled task. I think we see that in Christ's baptism. Christ's baptism and the affirmation of the Father and the Spirit didn't make Jesus the Son of God. He was already the Son of God, but it affirmed him as the Son of God. It said, this is my Son. This is who he is just in the same way that our obedience, whatever it is that God is calling us to do, doesn't save you, but it's fruit of what is true within you. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And if Jesus is God's son, in whom God is well-pleased, then uniting your life with Christ's gives you, this is mind-blowing, gives you the same status as Jesus gives you the same status as Jesus, a beloved child of God. That is what's true of you if you trust and in, in, in your, in your hope is in Jesus, that you are a beloved child of God. Isn't that crazy? That what God opened up the skies to declare to the world at the baptism of Jesus is what God will open up the skies and tell the world about you? that you are my beloved child and whom I'm well-pleased, not because you're great or you're awesome, but because your hope is in what Christ has done for us. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And, and you have a decision to make. If you've never trusted him, to trust him right now. If you have trusted him and you're living in a season of disobedience, can I just tell you, just come back to the Lord. He's not run from you. You've run from him. He's, he's right there waiting and he'll receive you. And that's what we acknowledge when we come to the table. <laughs> that, that, that right now, if I confess my sins, he will be faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And so let's stand together and let's pray and let's approach the table boldly and confidently knowing it is not my righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus. Father, we Come to you this morning, aware of our, of our need, aware of our desperation, aware of um, many of us, aware of what you have done for us, uh, that those who have um, been united with Jesus and his righteousness 
are beloved children of, of the most high God. And so Lord, would we just respond in light of that this morning through, through singing and worship to you? May we respond by, by, coming, by coming humbly to the table where we receive what we, what we do not deserve, where we, where, where we receive something that, that we um, have done nothing to, to pay for, but we are given everything that we need for righteousness, not in these elements in and of themselves, but in what these elements teach to us, what they teach to us about what the gospel is, that, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And so thank you, Lord, for, for saving us. Thank you for extending the offer of salvation to us and, and being able to, to keep up your, your end of the deal, even when we don't. We pray these things in your name. Amen.